Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Summer is heating up and so is the news flow out of the national park system. In the past week, we've reported on the death of a woman hiking down to Phantom Ranch in Grand Canyon National Park, a death believed to have been caused by the excessive heat sweeping the park. We also told you about a helicopter tour company that has been flying dangerously low at Montezuma Castle National Monument in Arizona, and the approach Cape Cod National Seashore and its surrounding towns are taking to keep visitors safe this summer. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. It's the end of the month, so in today's show, we're going to look back over the past four weeks and the news generated across the national park system. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. June has been an especially newsworthy month across the national park system for good and bad reasons. We've seen the U.S. Senate pass what some are calling the most important public lands bill in decades. More and more national parks have reopened areas to the public. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management is proposing a large oil and gas lease auction for lands near Arches, Canyonlands, and Capitol Reef National Parks. And the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that a natural gas pipeline could be tunneled beneath the Appalachian National Scenic Trail. Then, too, we've reported on helicopters buzzing the cliff dwelling at Montezuma Castle National Monument in Arizona, the death of a California woman hiking down to Phantom Ranch in Grand Canyon National Park, President Trump's loosening of protections for the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument off the coast of Cape Cod, and tons of microplastics turning up in national parks in the West. To help us sort through these news events, we're joined by Kristen Brengel, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Welcome back to The Traveler, Kristen. Thanks. Glad to be here. Quite, quite a busy month, wouldn't you say, news-wise? Uh, ridiculously busy month, news-wise. Uh, but, um, you know, this is a, usually a very busy time in Washington, D.C., too, so not surprising. And it's the kickoff of the summer season in the parks. Yeah. Um, why is it a particularly busy season, June, in, in Congress? Because they're trying to get a lot of stuff done before the summer recess? Correct. And typically, they hold off on doing appropriations until the June-July month. So this is just a big time in terms of looking at park funding and infrastructure and all sorts of issues. So 
I don't usually plan my vacations till August, I'll be honest. <laughs> well, you want to escape the humidity of the D.C. area. What should we make? That too. What should we make out of the Senate's passage of the Great American Outdoors Act? I mean, it wasn't a, a nail-biter by any stretch of the imagination. It was a, a rather um, overwhelming majority of the Senate passed it. And I, I question what might be going on because there have been park funding bills in the past. Uh, this legislation, the Great American Outdoors Act, has been around in the past. Um, pressure to pass full funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund has been around in the past. What what makes a difference this time around, do you think? Well, uh, we have been working on park funding for a really long time at NPCA, and this has been a buildup for a long time. So I, I've been sort of educating people about the Bush years. This is a George W. Bush administration mm-hmm. when the Park Service really took inventorying its infrastructure seriously and started to try to figure out where repairs near, needed to be uh, made throughout the park system. And that's when we learned the billions of dollars worth of repairs that were needed in parks. Well, sure. And then, um, it was it was George W. Bush during his campaign for president that he said he would wipe out what was then the $5 billion backlog of maintenance in the national park system within, I believe, five years. And, of course, um, come forward, geez, two decades, 20 years, and we're up to $12 billion. Sure. And that's just because things wear down and we have parks that are over 100 years old and so on. And so... Sure. At the end of the Bush administration, he invested some money in parks, but it wasn't enough. And then we had the park centennial, and we kept trying to move bills in Congress that would inject more money into parks. And we had ups and downs in the economy and and all sorts of issues going on at the time. And so you'll remember in 2016, we passed the park centennial bill. And that was the one-to-one match that mm-hmm. increased the senior fee. And so after we took that small bite at the apple, we realized that there was more of an appetite to take on the maintenance backlog. And that's why in 2017, the National Park Service Legacy Act was born. Um, and that was sponsored by Senators Warner and Portman. And when we started building political support for that bill, then um, there came more support for moving toward the Restore Our Parks bill, which only took care of half of the maintenance backlog. Right. But we started to see just a lot of bipartisan emphasis on the issue and a desire to want to get something done and something that people thought would be a reasonable amount of money to put toward the Park Service. At the same time, the Land and Water Conservation Fund was moving in a direction of building political support for mandatory funding for um, that $900 million a year. And that was gaining incredible traction. And so what what happened basically is that the political forces that care deeply about the Land and Water Conservation Fund and those that wanted to fix the parks sort of united around the idea of taking care of both issues and having a massive pro-parks bill that could move through the Senate and House. And really what it came down to from what we understand is that um, Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell, 
went to the White House and and they were willing to move the Restore Our Parks bill. And then Senators Gardner and Danes asked if they could join it up with the Land and Water Conservation Fund bill. And Trump agreed to sign legislation that would take care of both issues. And so the marriage was born. And now we have this incredible parks bill. We do. Um, and um, the the cynic in this journalist wonders how much politics played a role in that. And, and what I'm getting at is Cory Gardner from Colorado and Steve Daines from Montana, two Republicans, are both up for re-election this fall. Um, they're facing stiff challenges. And I know Cory Gardner wanted to... Um, keep the Senate in in uh, session over the Labor Day weekend to, to try and move this legislation. And uh, he only relented, I believe, when Senator McConnell promised him that they would bring it up when they got back. Um, do you think politics, uh, the, the majority in the Senate played a, a role in, in Senator McConnell's position and President Trump's position to, to move this legislation forward? I will go on record Kurt Repenshek is saying that every bill is political. And I've been doing this. I've been doing this work for about 25 years. And I will tell you that there is very seldom a time that Congress just passes something because it deeply cares about the issue only. There's always a political agenda. There's timing reasons and other factors that play a role in why we pass certain bills. And that's just the way. It is. And so um, this is a similar circumstance, but parks are incredibly popular and it, it, it should surprise no one that folks want to take advantage. Folks in Congress want to take advantage of the popularity of parks during an yeah. election year. Yeah. And, and certainly it's, it's worthy legislation that hopefully will do a lot of good. Um, it's going to do a ton of good. Not only are we going to fix the parks in the highest priority repair projects, but we're also going to create a lot more new parks. And so this is a great thing for the country and and worthy of the amount of attention that's getting in Congress. We're actually going to do something positive, which is fantastic. I'm sorry, did, did you say we're going to create new parks? Yeah, the Land and Water Conservation Fund acquires land right. for new parks and recreation areas and fishing access. And so it's um, a way to make sure that we have equity around the country and we have new parks for people to enjoy. And so it's going to be a really good thing to ma- make sure we get more parks and communities that need them and trails and fishing holes. Right. But but you're, you're referring more to the, the state and local parks as opposed to additions to the national park system. Yeah, but the Land and Water Conservation Fund is also used for um, national parks. Uh, not only for in-holdings, but also in some cases to create some new parks. So where there's real estate that needs to be purchased, um, if there's a historical site or something along those lines, uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund could be leveraged for you know, places that need that level of protection. So it's, it's a good thing for national and local parks. Are, are there any examples out there on the horizon that might be uh, um, soon to come to a national park system location near you? Well, we're looking at the Mobile Tensaw area in Alabama. There are a number of places where there there are acquisition opportunities to to protect some natural areas and some historic sites. And so, um, but these are all up for discussion right now. I don't want to get ahead of any discussions, but there's definitely places that 
uh, we could utilize land and water conservation funding for uh, future protection. Yeah, good to hear. Good to hear. Now, one of the more controversial issues um, across the country, for sure, and even it's gone around the world, is the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, they've been spreading across the, the nation. Statues to Confederate generals have either been pulled down or removed from public areas in parts of the country. The national park system, of course, um, in the, the battlefield parks, um, hold a lot of statues and monuments to the Confederacy. Have you heard of any pressure on the National Park Service to remove them? I haven't heard of any pressure to remove the monuments, you know, widely, but there have been issues with some specific monuments that folks would like removal. And so we've heard of one in Antietam that um, inaccurately depicts Robert E. Lee that folks would like removed. And then there's one that uh, Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton in D.C. would like removed that depicts Lincoln with an enslaved person. Hmm. Um, And so there are efforts with members of Congress to remove certain statues from the park system. The the one on Antietam, how does it inaccurately portray Robert E. Lee? I think... Uh, I, I can't remember the exact story, but it, it, it maybe it has him on a horse and he was not on a horse. There's something along those lines where it's actually, it doesn't actually represent what went on there accurately. And this was an inholding that was acquired that mm. the private landowner had the statue on his property. Mm. So it wasn't a statue that was put there by the Park Service. And so um, the idea would be that, you know, remove it because it is historically inaccurate and and, um, it wasn't put there by the Park Service. Sure, sure. Now, um, going back three years to 2017, um, there was the uh, riot in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, between the white supremacists and um, anti-racist folks. And that led to another discussion of what the Park Service should do with uh, Civil War statues and monuments. Across the country at that time, the issue of presentism, of viewing past events through today's attitudes and righteousness, were driving community decisions and fueling divisiveness, anger, and in some instances, violent unrest. And we're seeing a repeat of that now. Back then in 2017, uh, the Park Service said that um, Confederate memorials and monuments represent an important, if controversial, chapter in our nation's history. The National Park Service is committed to preserving these memorials while simultaneously educating visitors holistically about the actions, motivations, and causes of the soldiers and states they commemorate. A hallmark of American progress is our ability to learn from our history. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of history in the National Park System, and whether you agree with that history or not, you can't change that history should you erase it from the parks or, or should you leave it there to serve as an educational purpose? I feel like I could say two things about it. One is that we need to recognize how painful some of these statues and other artifacts are for people to see. It's very jarring when you see certain depictions of people and 
whether it's a Confederate soldier who's being glorified or a representation of an enslaved person that's insulting. It's it's very painful to see some of these things and come face to face with them. And mm-hmm. we need to empathize with the folks who, you know, are hugely affected by by seeing all of this stuff. And we need to honor our entire community and make sure that we are taking care of you know, all of the people who, who visit these, these areas. And so with that in mind, um, the parks have many um, sites that represent painful parts of American history, whether it's the Japanese internment camps, you know, or other places, battlefields, civil rights sites that tell very sort of painful parts of our history. And the great thing about the National Park Service is that they interpret these places and try to tell the story in a way that represents the various perspectives on an issue. And and they're honest about what happened there and the tragic parts of what happened there. And so the hope for the future of the parks is that um, they'll be able to continue to tell these stories in a truthful, honest way um, that give you as many perspectives as possible so that we don't erase our history. Uh, We tell the history, but, you know, we also need to take a careful look of uh, what's on the landscape and make sure that those are accurate depictions of, of what occurred on the landscapes. And, and, um, and so it's part of, of, of the park system. It's part of the way that we do interpretation. Um, And so it's important to tell these stories. So, and I know they'll continue to tell them and, um, if we have monuments and statues that um, are inaccurate, the Park Service needs to figure out whether it needs to be removed or whether there needs to be better interpretation of those sites. Yeah, yeah. We're talking today with Kristen Brengel, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, about uh, the news across the national park system in the month of June. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
We're back with Kristen Brangle, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Uh, Kristen, if you look back at the early um, part of June, President Trump went to Maine to remove a uh, no fishing sign, you might say, from the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts National Monument. It was a move hailed by the fishing industry, but which drew criticisms from environmental organizations and political opponents concerned about his attacks on public lands and the environment. How significant was his action? It was significant because the area was protected so fish populations could grow and recover from years of so many concerns out there with the fishing industry. And so to have commercial fishing go back into this area, it sort of defeats the purpose of establishing the National Monument. So it's a a monument in name only. Uh, and that's hugely problematic. So hopefully his proclamation will be overturned in court, if not by a new administration, and we can get back to protecting this area the way it should be protected. But um, it was just a careless decision. There's no other way to look at it. Yeah. And of course, this was not the first time that uh, the president and his administration have taken aim on monuments. Um, go back to uh 2017, I think it was, and uh, the decision to to break up the um, Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, both in Utah. I believe those decisions are still being litigated, no? They are. They're still in court in D.C., and uh, we hope there's a decision coming soon on, on the validity of him slashing those monuments. But um, we we don't have anything right now to report on in terms of the the court decision. But um, yeah, Bears Ears and and Grand Staircase Escalante are still uh, reduced in size technically, and we are seeing potential development on the horizon if if we don't um, get a good court decision soon. Yeah, and and, uh, I know the BLM has been um, (laughs) rearranging its management plans for those um, areas, and uh, I guess um, legally nobody can seek an injunction until there's actually um, those those plans are put into effect on the landscape, so to speak. Yeah, um, and we've been down this road before on other BLM-related issues where uh, until there's some action being taken, it's hard to uh, stop just a plan. But at least we now know what they want to do on the landscape and whether it's increasing off-road vehicle use, coal mining, it's it's on the table right now if, if we don't protect these places. Has there been a um, litigation yet on the um, Northeast Canyons and Seamounts uh, National Monument Proclamation? Well, there was pre-existing um, litigation that I think um, lobstermen and some other fishing interests had. Right. Um, and, um, and there will be litigation on, um, on the uh, Trump proclamation, I'm sure. Yeah, I was just curious if that's been filed yet or if it's still in the early stages of drafting. You know, we're talking about uh, the Bureau of Land Management and um, some of the actions they're doing. Utah seems to be a a hot spot. Um, The BLM is proposing a large uh, oil and gas lease auction for lands near Arches, Canyonlands, and and Capitol Reef National Parks. I'm kind of mystified over, over this because there is so little known oil and gas reserves in Utah. They bring in so little money. The ones that have been developed bring in so little money to the state compared to the tourism 
economies driven by um, Capitol Reef and Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. Can you read the tea leaves? What's going on here? Why is the BLM bringing this back up again? It's the energy dominance agenda that the administration has had. Um, It's the influence of Secretary David Bernhardt. It's this keep your foot on the gas pedal of leasing, um, do quarterly lease sales, and it, it just hasn't stopped. I think total they have leased or attempted to lease about 26 million acres of land right. during this administration. Nationally. And um, it's just nonstop with them. And, you know, Utah just seems to attract incredible amounts of lease sales. And as you pointed out, in the Moab region and around Dinosaur National Monument, uh, these are places that um, whenever we get a pro uh, energy Development Administration. These are the first places that get sort of attacked, if you will. And so in some ways, it's not a surprise because we saw leasing similar to this during the Bush years, and now we're seeing it again with this administration. But um, what's incredible to me is always that they get so darn close to the parks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there's no public support for that. And it just is a mystery to me why they would even consider some of these leases that get, you know, within a mile of of, of some of the most prized national parks in Utah. Yeah. I mean, who wants to see um, a pump jack from Arches? Well, um, it's not just So the, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's not just a pump jack, of course. It's the air pollution. It's the, the truck traffic on the roads. You know, there was a, a news report in, in Utah the other day that the Moab Town Council... I believe, voted unanimously to ask the BLM not just to protect the national parks, but to just remove this entire lease proposal from the September um, calendar, which I I found interesting. And, and, you know, I was talking with your your colleague, Erica Pollard, last week about this lease issue. And in Utah, I believe um, two or two and a half million acres have been leased. And only about half of that or less than half of that has actually been drilled upon, and it's just sitting there. And that, that's another thing that mystifies me as to why the BLM would, would offer more leases when there's so many leases they've issued that haven't been acted on. It's a mystery, isn't it? And completely useless waste of taxpayer dollars and not a good use of BLM's time. And it's almost as though we're forgetting that BLM lands are multiple-use lands, so it's not just to cater to one industry. <laughs> and so yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just a waste of so much energy and time when uh, we could be protecting wildlife habitat, we could be protecting endangered species better, we could be doing more science on the land. Think about all the things that can be done, um, but so much uh, agency time is being spent on on looking for useless lease sales. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a mystery. We've seen a lot of national parks start to reopen in the, in the past few weeks. Um some have done it well, some have done it not so well. There was a Interior Department's Office of Inspector General report that came out yesterday that looked at 30 national parks that um either had or were planning to open, reopen between May and July 1st. And um, the OIG said that 10 of those parks didn't do a good job in preparing um, plans to deal with COVID-19. Kind of an interesting finding. 
And then also, um, not long after we got wind of that story, came word from Zion National Park um, that they're going to resume shuttle operations on July 1st at a time when Utah's COVID cases are rocketing upwards. Again, you have to wonder if politics and, and local politics and national politics are pushing some of these decisions that, that there should be a little bit more uh, moderate approach to, to reopening as we're seeing caseloads of COVID-19 spread across the country and spike. Yeah, on one hand, the, the parks are in this pickle, right, um, mm-hmm. where states and counties across the country are, quote unquote, reopening and we're seeing more restaurants and uh, public spaces reopen and this desire by the public to want to sort of get back to normal. And so the parks are part of these communities in some ways. And so um, there's pressure to reopen those areas. But the, the perspective that we come at this is from the perspective of the, the park service itself, the staff, and the fact that we know these places get crowded, really crowded. Mm-hmm. And so everything the epidemiologists say right now are to stay away from crowds and to wear face masks and to socially distance. And so I'll be the first to admit that we are very concerned when we hear about shuttles opening and visitor centers opening and people going there in higher numbers than the Park Service is recommending. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, my biggest worry is that the parks become vectors um, and become places where people get sick. And the other worry is the park staff end up getting sick as a result of this. Yeah. And so, and and what what's going to end up happening if, if too many park service staff get sick because of, you know, crowded conditions, they, they might not be able to keep the parks open if there are no staff to protect the parks. And so it, it's just a shame that, certain considerations aren't being enforced and made and that Secretary Bernhardt in particular advertising through his Twitter account, the reopening of this area. And I'm so thrilled to reopen this area and please go visit these places. And it does concern us because, you know, we're seeing, as you're, as you said, we're seeing the numbers rise in so many places and, and it is a documented fact that, crowded conditions are conducive to spreading the virus. And so um, I just hope people are really careful and uh, take care of themselves and their families. And I think uh, some parks like Great Smokies and others have been doing these great videos saying, if if the parking lot is full, go to the next one. Mm-hmm. You know, don't mm-hmm. go down that trail. So people just need to be really, really safe when they think about their park visit. And um, And then I think there are other parks like Rocky Mountain that are doing timed entry right now. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we should be really looking at those parks that are limiting not only uh, entrance but also parking, um, and just see how well that may work out uh, in terms of um, proactively distancing people from each other. So I'll be interested to see Yosemite, Rocky Mountain, those parks that are doing timed entry and how that works. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think anybody disagrees that uh, getting out into the fresh air and hiking on a trail is good for you and and safer than going to a restaurant, um, sitting down to a table next to somebody who might have COVID. But um, to go to a national park, you have to travel. And to travel, you have to stop and get gas or use a restroom or, or 
go to a, a, a restaurant for something to eat, and um, that's how disease gets spread. It's not walking down the trail necessarily. I know at Yellowstone National Park, um, they've been very open, um, not only about their their plan for reopening, but they've been doing um, weekly or biweekly um, testing of employees um, since they have reopened. And I think they've tested uh, over 200 employees and only one was positive for um, COVID-19. And that was a contractor who was working outside the park, um, apparently when they contracted it. And so you have to, you have to wonder um, how many parks are mirroring what Yellowstone has done and how many are, are testing um, their employees for, for the disease. I know I reached out to Great Smoky Mountains National Park and, and they wouldn't give me that information. Um, they said it's got to come through the Washington headquarters. And of course, Washington is very silent on, on what the numbers are showing as well. So I guess this is one of those things that we might find out the, the facts after the facts, so to speak. Uh, that's the way it appears to be going. And I've asked Interior Department officials to tell us what the number of positive COVID cases are, and they are pretty tight-lipped about it in terms of the Park Service staff. So I think you're right that we'll find out after the fact. But um, the one thing we do know is that uh, Park Service superintendents care deeply about their staff. They're going to do everything they can to take care of them. And that some feel that they're being pushed into sort of reopening in ways that they wouldn't do if they weren't being pressured to do that, but they're trying to do everything that they can to keep their staff safe. And so um, just hoping that uh, those steps that they're taking are, are going to work, but you know, this is unpredictable, but um, you know, the risk reward here is, is kind of interesting, but, um, but you know, we'll see how it goes and, I hope we don't have a big second wave that uh, will require parks to close down again. But um, but the numbers are going up pretty dramatically right now. Yeah, they really are. They really are. And park staff have no magic immunity from disease, unfortunately. You know, just the other day, um, we, re- we reported um, a story from Montezuma Castle National Monument about a helicopter tour company that one of their helicopters um, flew down almost level with the cliff dwelling at Montezuma Castle and only about 100 feet away. And I know that uh, one of the, the issues that was dear to your heart um, sometime, some years ago was the effort to get air management um, tours, come up with plans for managing them across the national park system. Another example of how how we're not managing to do that for some reason. In terms of air tours, um, this has just been um, an incredible issue that has so many impacts on park visitors on the ground. And the fact that we, after 20 years of having a law in place that requires air tour plans for parks that have uh, quite a bit of air tours, and, and we don't have a single real plan uh, that has been put into effect. This is a big problem. And what happened at Montezuma's Castle is just another example of how absolutely unregulated air tours are in national parks. And I will tell you from my own personal experience of sitting on the National Park um, Overflight Advisory Group, this is just, I don't even know how to say it, but <laughs> um, 
there, there's no desire by the FAA to actually um, get air tours under control. And they have basically uh, made sure that air tour plans don't get done. And I really do hope the court decision that happened earlier this year uh, forces them to do these air tour plans because it is just a travesty that we basically have a completely unregulated industry. And the only thing that we've heard from the FAA is uh, we want free airspace. We want people to be able to, to, to use the free airspace and there's no consideration for the noisiness uh, with the people on the ground and user conflicts and the effects on wildlife. And this has got to stop. Well, and, and what makes the uh, the Montezuma Castle um, incident um, so egregious is, I mean, the whirly bird was you know directly across from this 850 to 1,000 year old cliff dwelling that is vulnerable to age and, and weathering and, and just the... Um, the, the decomposition of the materials that were used to build it. And so, you know, you, the Park Service tells me that they've conducted tests, that there is science out there that the vibrations from the rotor blades can impact these these cliff dwellings. You know, maybe not immediately, but, you know, it, it can be a, um, something that's built up over time if enough of these helicopters come down there and take a look at that. But beyond that, you know, as you mentioned, it's the, um, the, the intrusion into the, the visitor's experience at the National Monument. And then, God forbid, that there's a, an accident. Um, it's just uh, mind-blowing what some of these uh, helicopter pilots think they can do safely and get away with. Yeah, you know, when I sat on the, it's called the NPOG, the National Park Advi- uh, Overflight Advisory Group, the helicopter folks would always say, we're so safe, we have a safe track record, safety is not really a big issue here. And they would talk about the visitors who want to see things by air. And you know, what about those folks? And I think the sort of missing piece here are the considerations, like you're saying, is what's too close? How far do you need to be from the ground in order to have the the least amount of impact to the people and the resources on the ground? And these are considerations that have never been put in place. They do these voluntary agreements with some parks sometimes, but a lot of these considerations aren't in there. There's no site-specific analysis. There's no real carrying capacity of how many air tours are too many in a day. And, um, you know, people go to national parks to hear the sights and the sounds and, you know, enjoy nature and enjoy a historical site. And, and this kind of noise can be incredibly disruptive to that visit. And I know, you know, when I have my once-in-a-lifetime trips to certain parks, when something like that that can be regulated is incredibly disruptive with your visit, it, it's it's not pleasant and it's not something that should happen. And so I really do hope that this court decision forces the FAA and the Park Service to come up with plans that will better serve the parks and the people visiting them. But um, this is just the bane of my existence. I am so outraged by how absolutely ridiculous it has been to get these agencies to to actually do something about air tours, and I'm I'm glad the the court was so emphatic with them a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Grand Canyon actually come up with a a reasonable air management plan um, a couple of years back that was never put into effect? Ha. Uh, so. The National Park Overflight Bill is separate from the Grand Canyon legislation that was done. So Grand Canyon is governed separately from mm-hmm. 
the law that was referenced in the um, court case. But what happened with Grand Canyon was that um, Congress actually disrupted the Grand Canyon plan, and it was um, Senators McCain and Reed that basically removed the caps from the air tours. And so the plan is basically a non-plan at this point. Of course, that was John, John, the late John McCain from Arizona, home of the Grand Canyon, and Harry Reid, the majority leader at the time from Nevada. And I guess more than a few of those helicopter tours um, are launched from Las Vegas, right? Totally, and um, and perceived as a part of their economy. And so, yes, I do remember the day very vividly when we lost on the Grand Canyon, and it was um, a huge loss because so much time was invested in mm-hmm coming up with flight paths and carrying capacity and just to have that all thrown away so easily was, um, was really terrible. So maybe one day people will be sympathetic to, um, getting this, uh, use under control. Yeah. Yeah. Well, economics, unfortunately has an overbearing impact on national parks and the decisions that are made there. One last item I wanted to to toss out there for discussion and it's more, an issue that was something I never realized, and it was kind of like an oh wow moment. Um, there was a, a study that came out that said that more than two million pounds of microplastics, which is roughly the equivalent of 123 million plastic bottles, settle on national parks and other public lands in the West each year. I mean, that's a, a mind-boggling number and, and impact to the parks. I don't know if there's anything we can do about it, but um, it, it really makes you wonder about um, what we're doing to our natural landscapes. Or any landscape, right? <laughs> I mean, um, it's, you know, parks are sort of perceived as these pristine places where you can do these kinds of studies and get a sense of, um, you know, how we're polluting in our natural areas. But um, they should open up everyone's eyes to what's happening in their own community, you know? Really, yeah, yeah. They're, so, um, but it's 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 incredible, isn't it? How the different types of pollution that we're seeing and how it can affect the landscapes and the ecosystems. And so, you know, just another big eye opener for the for the week. Yeah, yeah. And of course, a lot of us own fleece garments, whether it's an outerwear or, or base layer or whatnot. And of course, a lot of fleece, if not all fleece, is made from plastic. And um, the researchers were able to um, identify some of the microplastics that they found as coming from fleece clothing. And so, you know, it's, it's not just um, pollution being blown in from, from other communities, but it's um, pollution that uh, a lot of us probably carry into the parks ourselves. And I wonder if that's going to cause folks to, to pause and, and um, the clothing manufacturers to pause and say, we've got to find a different fabric. Yeah, I think um, this is exactly the type of information that gives people a reason to rethink their, you know, what they use, the materials they use. And so, you know, and we're all responsible as consumers, too, to make sure that we're uh, asking industry to make these changes. Um, But um, we all have to play a role in being good stewards of these places. So um, we need industry to be responsive to it, too. But I think it's been amazing. You know, even in the last few years of, of, you know, the different materials that people are using for clothing and other camping gear. So hopefully we can move in a better direction. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. 
Necessity is a mother invention, they say. We'll, we'll see if that plays true. We've been talking today with Kristen Brengel, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association, about news events across the national park system during the month of June. Kristen, it really has been a pleasure. Um, it's really also fascinating um, to see how much news is generated by the national parks, both both good and, and bad. And hopefully going forward, we'll have more positive news to report on as opposed to the negative stories. Yeah, call me back after the bill passes, and then we can talk about all the positive things that it'll do for the parks. <laughs> you know, we'll have a happy podcast. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about the bill, one other thing I, I, I forgot: the House. Any idea when the House of Representatives will take up the Senate bill? Good question. So, um, essentially, uh, the Majority Leader uh, Mr. Hoyer announced that they would take it up in July during that work period. So, uh, we're hoping they take it up as quickly as possible. And then hopefully within this upcoming fiscal year, the Park Service will start to spend some of the repair money. So this could have a pretty immediate um, positive impact. So, um, so we're hoping that we'll be, the bill will be passed and signed uh, by July. By, by July or by the end of July? End of July. Yeah. Because um, Congress, is, Congress is in recess over the 4th. Yeah. Do you see any potential roadblocks in the, in the House that could uh, jeopardize things? Oh, you know, there's there are folks who, for different reasons, don't like the bill, but um, we have so much support for these bills. The Restore Our Parks part alone has 330 co-sponsors, and so um, we believe we have the votes to pass the bill. But, um, you know, this is a great election time issue for people to go back home and say, we're going to repair the parks, we're going to help the economy. We're going to be able to create more parks for more people. And so we believe that there's every reason for most members of Congress to vote for it. Okay. Well, we'll catch up with you in late August or late July or early August to, to see how the, the House has passed it. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today. It's uh, been enjoyable as always. Thank you. That's our show. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have suggestions for future shows, please send them to us via news at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Stay safe and stay healthy out there in the national park system. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.